Want to hear something amazing? Oh, and feel free to tell your friends too. So, Kohl's, they're having a huge sale on summer stuff. And if you live for sunny days like I do, you need to check it out. I got 40% off a new patio set, Food Network grilling essentials for 20% off, and 50% off those yard games my kids won't stop talking about. Best part? I got an extra 15% off and some Kohl's cash. It almost makes being cooped up all winter worth it. Almost. Select styles 15% offer ends May 16th. Some exclusions apply. See store or Kohl's.com for details. Welcome to the Huddle Up Podcast, your go-to show for all things Broncos. What is good, Broncos country? Welcome into the Huddle Up Podcast, presented by Mile High Huddle. It's time to drop some knowledge and have a little bit of fun. I'm your host, Chad Jensen, Scout Media, CBS Sports Digital. With me, as always, is Will Keyes, editor and writer at Mile High Huddle. Will, this is a football show. Far be it for me to take us off the rails and talk NBA basketball. But, dude, did you watch the finals uh, last night? I absolutely did. I did catch game, what was it, game four of the finals. Cavs uh, down 3-0, facing elimination. A little bit of shady officiating, and as a Sacramento Kings fan, that's a little bit of a sore subject. (laughs) So for that reason, I'm ready to talk football. Well, let's exercise those demons and talk about the fact that today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com forward slash huddle up. Over 180,000 different titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash huddle up. In fact, today I was using Audible uh, as I was doing some stuff around the house, uh, cooking some breakfast, doing a little things, listening to a book called The Heroes by Joe Abercrombie on the Audible uh, app and I got started in the exact same way oddly enough um, that's why I was excited to get this particular sponsor is it's a product I use it's a product I love and uh, I started out by uh, getting a trial seeing if I liked it and realized how much I enjoyed listening now I'm a big reader and one of the benefits uh, kind of a side benefit to having this app and utilizing the membership is being able to consume the books without necessarily sitting down and having the time to just read. So I can be listening on my commutes and while I'm doing other things. So check that out, uh, audibletrial.com forward slash huddle up. And of course, it helps us out tremendously. Now we're here to give you a deep dive on your favorite team, the Denver Broncos, and we need your help. We can't grow without you. So take a second, rate the show on iTunes, or if you're on Android, rate the show on Stitcher. Now, we have thousands of listeners to this show every week, and yet, I was looking at this the other day, Will, if you go to our iTunes page, just 11 ratings. On Stitcher, only three ratings. That wounds us, y'all. So consider this a call to action. Just take a second, rate the show on whichever service you're using, whether it's iTunes or Stitcher, and leave a comment. Two very important things that can help us tremendously, and we'd appreciate it. Make sure you are following the show on Twitter, at HuddleUpPod. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and uh, we've got Mandatory Minicamp coming up next week, followed by a long few weeks of no Denver Broncos activity. But do you think we're going to clock out in the meantime? Hell no. We're going to keep the analysis flowing, and you're not going to want to miss a single episode. 
Now, the Broncos, of course, officially wrapped up OTAs on Thursday. They'll get just a few days off over the weekend, and then it's back to work again for minicamp. Then they get that long vacation, um, ending up back at Dove Valley for training camp at some point at the end of July. Uh, During OTAs, though, the Broncos held 10 practices. We got to see kind of the complexion of what the 2017 Broncos looks like on the field. No pads, no contact, of course, but there was still much to be gleaned from those sessions. Today, we're going to kind of merge our Do You Buy It segment with Quarterback Watch because the development of Paxton Lynch is straddling both topics. So let's start with him. From the time that Lynch arrived back at Dove Valley earlier this spring, we've heard consistently um, things where he basically seems like a new man. He's much more confident, which is a big deal, and really it's a requisite confidence uh, for a quarterback who's hoping to win the starting job. Now, the Broncos are installing a new offensive system under Mike McCoy, and Lynch, who struggled with Gary Kubiak's system immensely as a rookie, has already impressed his teammates and coaches, and we've talked about that on the show. Trevor Simeon is having to learn the same system as Lynch, and many analysts believe that that gave him a leg up on Lynch. I mean, he's perceived, Simeon that is, to be the smart guy. He's a Northwestern guy, right? He should be the smartest player in the room. And that might be true, but Lynch has seemingly managed to, at the very least, keep up with Simeon when it comes to knowledge of the playbook. So that's a plus. And I say that because when it came to actually practicing in 11-on-11 and 7-on-7 drills out on the grass, Lynch was in command from most accounts. He had his ups and downs, but by the third week of practice, Will, Lynch uh, was earning positive marks publicly each and every day, whether it was coming from the media, whether it was coming from coaches or players. And conversely, in that third and final week of practice, Simeon seemed to lose a little bit of momentum, had a fair amount of struggles, which kind of made Lynch stand out in contrast a bit more. Now, here's the thing. It's only minicamp. There's still a long, long way to go and a lot of work left to be put in. So we do have to kind of pump the brakes and mitigate our expectations a little bit. But the general theme is that Lynch has showed the Broncos what they were hoping to see from him in his second minicamp as a pro. Do you buy that, though, Will? Or do you think that I and others like myself might be reading a little bit too much into that? Yeah, I'm not really sure that I buy it yet. It's interesting that you brought up that Simeon kind of had a little, um, I guess, had some struggles earlier in OTAs while Lynch kind of shined. I think that's a little bizarre to me just because, you know, when Simeon plays well and Lynch doesn't do so well, you kind of get the the Simeon detractor saying, oh, well, it's just practice. And then when the reverse happens, you know, Lynch has made a big leap. But you talked earlier about Lynch's increased confidence. I never really thought that his demeanor or anything was his problem last year. It's more his football acumen and a few uh, mechanical issues as well. Sure. You know, when he's when he's playing well, like he did against Tampa Bay, he looks, or at least he gives the outward illusion that he's really confident. And then when he had his struggles against Jacksonville, and then uh, for the most part against Atlanta. He looks like he's lost, which most young quarterbacks do when they're not playing well. It kind of snowballs on them. So really what I want to see in training camp and then into the preseason is uh, his ability to anticipate passes a little bit better, throw the ball before the receiver is open, not when they're open. He has a good arm, so he can kind of get away from it or get away with it. But um, he'll be more successful if he sees the receiver break before he is open rather than getting rid of the ball as he is open. And then after that, if you can pull that off, move through progressions a little bit quicker and then 
uh, fix his footwork. If his footwork's a little more consistent, that's really the best way to fix your accuracy, and that was one of his big struggles last year. You know, it's funny you bring up the – I mean, you're right. It's, you know, when it comes to Paxton Lynch – uh, fans and including media, media as well is probably the biggest proponent of this. We seem to kind of cling to any sign that he's doing well, right? And yeah. and we blow that maybe even out of proportion. And we have to ask ourselves why that might be. And I think really what it comes down to is with Paxton Lynch, his rookie season was so disappointing in that it's not that he was such a failure or that he sucked so bad or anything like that. It was just a disappointment in that here he is, he comes in as a first-round pick, and it's not like he's being asked to beat out uh, Peyton Manning. He's being asked as this big-time first-rounder to come in and take out a, a former seventh-round pick entering his second year who's yet to play really a meaningful NFL down and a totally burnt out and relatively washed out, uh, or washed up, I should say, quarterback in Mark Sanchez. And a lot of people expected that to really be just kind of a slam dunk for Lynch. But Simeon, the dark horse, rose up, and by the time the preseason was over, he had won the job, hands down, plain and simple. And so that really soured a lot of fans, of course, on Paxton Lynch. I mean, how good can this guy be if he can't beat out Trevor Simeon in his second year? But the reality, too, is that, you know, that that was selling Simeon short a little bit. Many of us maybe didn't even realize how good Simeon uh, was or how far along on his development he was up to that point. But with Paxton Lynch, you know, looking at it today, it, it I, I, I look for, speaking of myself as an analyst, because I, and it's not that I, I'm, I'm a, against, you know, may the best man win in that whole ethos. It's that I really think for the Broncos to get where they need to be as a team, as a franchise, they invested a first round pick in this uh, in Paxton Lynch, they have to play him at some point. I mean, in the NFL, first-round picks play, and that's the trial by fire. Yes, some of them bust out, just like any any player, but first-round picks have to play, Will. And I think what, for me, just speaking for myself, I look for signs that he is getting farther or closer to that point because I do want to have confidence that if the Broncos make that decision, it's the right one. Right. I think I, I get where you're coming from, but I also think that can get you- get you into a little bit of trouble uh, as an organization saying, you know, we acquired this guy for X amount of dollars in free agency, or we spent whatever a first round pick on him. And that means he has to play. Uh, Usually when teams have done that in the past, think about like, I don't know, Doug Flutie versus Rob Johnson in Buffalo back when Wade Phillips was coaching the team going way back. Yeah. And I think the fan base was not as split as it is now between Simeon and Lynch. But there was, I guess, I don't know, the majority of Bills fans saw Doug Flutie and saw the passion. And I don't know, he just found a way to win and said, I don't care what we spent on Rob Johnson. I don't care how good he looked as Mark Brunel's backup in Jacksonville. I've seen Doug Flutie do it on the field, and I want him to remain as a starter. And I think the guys who are behind Trevor Simeon starting this year kind of have the same sentiment. We've seen him do it. We've seen him put up an 8-6 and six record in his first year after, I guess, not really redshirting, but not seeing the field right. uh, aside from one kneel down. And I think that's that's more or less the sen- sentiment now in Broncos country. Yeah, and that's fair. I mean, and again, I, I don't want to portray myself as being anti-Simeon because I'm certainly not. I mean, 
The kid, right. he's a great story. He exceeded my expectations, and there's a lot to like about him as a quarterback. My thing between the two, and if I have any bias at all, it's that I do believe when it comes to natural ability. So throw away the whole first-round pick thing, you know, and the investment the team has in that. Throw that away for now in this conversation. For me, it's the fact that I do believe that Paxton Lynch has a much higher ceiling than Trevor Simeon. And so as he's getting more acclimated to the to the speed of the game, he's had a, a full season under his belt, now a full off season under his belt, and things are starting to slow down for him. Things are He's starting to acclimate to the speed of the game. He's starting to be able to react more in the moment and just play rather than all the thinking. And we heard him talk about that when he first met with the media back when OTAs first began. He talked about how things are slowing down and that as a rookie, his one of his biggest hurdles was he'd get out on the field and he was thinking instead of just playing and reacting where it becomes innate and almost instinctual second nature. And the closer he gets to really being in that kind of football zen, I think the more you're going to see his natural talent bleed out and kind of rise to the surface like the cream, per se. Yeah, I agree. I mean, even if you don't see exactly what you hoped from uh, Paxton Lynch this year, quarterbacks make their biggest leap usually from year two to year three. So there's still time. And and even because you you spent a first-round pick on him doesn't mean he has to be out by week one, of year two so you know give him give him time let him learn the system if he if he does beat out trevor simeon then give him the starting job but if not it's not the end of the world for him either it doesn't mean that the first round pick was necessarily wasted just yet yep absolutely but i do think just to sum it up as a topic and you tell me if you would agree with me on this will and and again it's just otas but i do feel like if if you're trying to read the signs you know lick your thumb try and see which way the wind is blowing I think that Lynch is picking up a little bit of momentum coming out of camp. I think that's fair to say. Now let's kick the do you buy it can a little bit further down the road. Of course, this is a segment where we tackle a common Denver Broncos narrative to determine its merit. Will, take it away. Okay, so we heard from Andy Janovich a couple days ago after OTAs, and we've kind of been talking about it all offseason, how – seeing if there is a place for a fullback in Mike McCoy's offense, because of course, Janovich was drafted last year by the Kerry Kubiak regime who absolutely loves to use fullbacks. Mike McCoy does typically use fullbacks in his offense. You know, they drafted Derek Watt last year in San Diego. He appeared in all 16 games, didn't really do much statistically outside of a big catch and run against Denver. But listening to Janovich talk the other day, he kind of talked about how, you know, even though this this offense does love to throw the ball a lot more than they did last year, there is still a place uh, in this system and on this team for him. So do you buy that he does actually have a spot on the 53-man roster? Or do you think he's on the brink? You know, for me, if, if I had to make a determination today, I would say that he probably has a place on the team. But I am one of these guys, and I know I'm in the minority, especially when it comes to, you know, mile-high huddle staff, that I don't. I think he has a lot further, or what's a good way to put it? He has a lot longer road to hoe uh, <clears throat> than yeah. than a lot of people realize, I think. And and really, for me, it's not that I, – I don't say that because I don't think he, he's a good player or that he doesn't offer a multiple amount of tools that can benefit this team. I just look, Will, at the roster math because you've got three uh, running backs who are virtual locks to make the roster in Jamal Charles, C.J. Anderson, and Devontae Booker. And then you have the, granted, a six-round pick, but you have a rookie running back, a draft pick in uh, D'Angelo Henderson being added to the mix. 
plus the other guys who are on the roster, the veterans in Juwan Thompson and uh, Bernard Pierce. So it's a pretty good soup of, of, you know, diverse soup of running backs who have a lot of experience and have a lot to offer. And so for, for Janovich to make this, this team, the way I see it is he's going to have to beat out somebody uh, that's, that's really, really good and be able to prove that he can offer more to the team than just being a blocker, which I think he can. You know, I think we've seen in the past, and if you look, go back and look at some of his college tape, and as you wrote about earlier this week, Will, at milehighhuddle.com, I mean, mm-hmm. when, when Janovich gets a ball in his hands, by and large, he tends to do something impressive with it. I mean, he makes, he makes a difference. So I'm curious to see, really, what kind of wrinkles Mike McCoy can put into this system that will feature Janovich, not, not as a primary guy, but will feature him and capitalize on his ability to make things happen with the ball in his hand. Yeah, I really like Mike McCoy as an offensive coordinator and just kind of as a coach in general because I think he does a good job adapting his offense to the personnel rather than the other way around, the personnel to the offense. And I think Janovich is way too talented of a blocker, runner, and a receiver to ignore and just kind of cut loose at the end of the preseason. And I think there's a little bit of – a historical argument as far as Mike McCoy's uh, tenure, even with the Broncos. So if you go back to 2011, that was the Tebow year. Oh yeah. Uh, Spencer Larson, who was a really versatile guy, definitely more versatile than Andy Janovich because he played offense and defense linebacker, right? Yeah. He played, he played a little fullback. He started one game, I think uh, against Atlanta where he played all three phases. That's right. Offense, defense, special teams, but McCoy kept him on the, on the roster and he had 23 touches throughout the whole year, which is, it's kind of a lot for a fullback. And then uh, the next year with Peyton Manning at the end of the season, Denver picked up Jacob Hester, who you're, you'll remember oh, yeah. uh, played at LSU and then spent a while with Phillip rivers in San Diego. And he got some touches too, right at the end of the year, he scored two touchdowns in the last three games of the season. So I, I think, uh, the moral of that is if you're a fullback and you can handle the ball and not just block and take on linebackers, but actually do things when you get the ball in your hands, which I think Janovich absolutely can do, yeah. you have a place on Mike McCoy's offense, even if it's not as emphasized as it was in Gary Kubiak's. I just think, too, you know, one thing that, that another feather in Janovich's cap is what he can do for you on special teams. You know, when he, I think it was his last year at Nebraska. Uh, if I recall this correctly, he led the team in special teams tackles, put up 13 special teams tackles. So we didn't see much of that as far as you know tackling uh, or making tackles on uh, punt and kick coverages as a rookie um, because he didn't see as many special team snaps in that way. But he also brings that to the table. So I'm, I'm hopeful that he's going to have a seat at the table. Uh, I just think that a lot of that is going to be determined by how McCoy ends up shaping this offense and how the roster math pans out. Yeah, I mean Janovich is really he's a he's a football player. He's a he's a Gruden grinder, like they like they like to say on Monday Night Football. Oh yeah. So I think you just have to get him on the field one way or another. If if you had to line him up at linebacker, I think he'd do like a pretty good job even. And if he does, he's not going to get as many snaps as he did in I think his eleven games last year at fullback. That's okay. And if he can touch the ball, I don't know, two times a game and make an impact on those two plays and however many plays he gets in uh, an eye formation. If he can make a difference on whatever package they give him, I think it's worth a roster spot. Absolutely. We'll see how it shakes out. Now, another thing that happened on Thursday, second-year safety Justin Simmons 
took to the podium and talked about how he envisions his role on the defense this year. Now, he was asked directly whether the Broncos' defense in the no-fly zone can actually improve and get better in 2017. Here's what he said. A lot better. Um, and that's, uh, that's scary for, for other teams um, because we know we could be a lot better. Um, you know, we, ex- we executed at a high level last year, but there were still a lot of mistakes that we left out on the, um, out on the field. And we're going back and looking through the film now. Um, but that's all that I've been talking about, you know, especially as, um, especially as a rookie last year, you know, going back and looking at what I know now compared to like the middle of the season last year. Um, so many things that um, I just missed just because I was trying to, for a better lack of a word, survive throughout that time. You know, I was trying to make sure that, um, you know, I was just in the right place at the right time instead of stepping up and making plays and really executing what was being called and, and things of that nature. Now, Will, I wrote a premium story on this subject that published on Friday night. Now, I'm not going to quote from, you know, the data I went through in that piece. If you want to see that, go premium, sign up at milehighhuddle.com. It costs five bucks a month. And you not only get access to 100% of our Broncos content, including our film room breakdowns, but you also get 10% off on Broncos tickets and team merchandise through Fanatics. So go to the site, click join in the menu bar. But anyway, in this story, one thing I did uh, point to is Denver's passing defense, talking about can they improve. They finished number one in, uh, in passing for two years in a row, 2015 and 2016. But last year, they actually improved over their stellar 2015 campaign that we all remember culminating, of course, in the Super Bowl championship. Last year, they allowed 14 less net yards through the air per game. And Simmon believes that they can actually improve on that in 2017. That's a pretty tall order, Will. Do you buy it? I don't know if I really buy it. And that's not a knock on the no-fly zone, but that's to say that they're all going to be a year older, especially I think that makes a difference for Aqib Tlaib. You know, we'll see how he does in his advanced age. Not that he's too old yet. And another reason is they were just so good, like you said, last year and then the year before. It's almost it's almost impossible to get better. But what I do buy from that is that Justin Simmons is going to be much improved in 2017. Yeah. He really came on down the stretch last year. I think he had a pick in uh, that Christmas uh, Christmas evening game. Yep. against the Chiefs, and then uh, he picked off Connor Cook in that last game against Oakland. And, of course, you know, we all remember the blocked extra point against the Saints that saved that game. And he even showed promise on a few safety blitzes, so he's a really versatile safety, and he's really good to have in those dime packages. But I think he's really going to make the Broncos think twice about extending T.J. Ward because mm. I think the more you get Justin Simmons on the field, the more you realize that we we might want to commit to this guy long-term instead of paid tj ward you know x amount of dollars over the next few years that's a good point i mean we know that there have been talks between tj ward and the team about a possible new contract and my biggest thing with tj ward is i love what he does in the box but in coverage i mean it's just time after time he gets exploited and with justin simmons i mean the one thing that i thought was so good about the 2015 broncos as a defense is wade phillips coming in it was his first year in denver realized that he could utilize David Bruton as a tool to take away the opposing team's best tight end. And we saw him do that uh, time and time again throughout the season until he ended up getting hurt in that that away game. Um, But Justin Simmons, you know, he has a similar size, uh, six foot two, he's a little bit over 200 pounds. Uh, He's, you know, he could still stand maybe to put a little bit more weight on 
Uh, but he's really just kind of a, uh, he's got the size and physicality to contend with these more athletic, you know, of course, bigger body, tight ends are bigger. But these pass-catching tight ends, for example, he talked about on Thursday some of his uh, his one-on-one battles with Kansas City's Travis Kelsey, who has become you know one of the top two or three tight ends in the NFL. And moving forward, getting back to your point about, yeah, can the no-fly zone improve? Maybe, but really, Simmons has the opportunity to improve. I think, and he talked about this also, being more of a, of a force – as a matchup safety in coverage, being able to take away the tight end. And as we know, the Broncos have struggled traditionally to cover the tight end. And if Simmons can find a way to neutralize that, and make that, I mean, I can, I can only imagine how big of a difference that would make just in the passing defense itself. Yeah, it's really an asset if you do have someone that can take away a tight end. I mean, you're, you're never going to completely neutralize someone like I don't know, Rob Gronkowski, for example, if yeah. you know if he's healthy, and obviously the Patriots are as big a rival as anybody in the AFC right now. And then you've got two games against Travis Kelsey, and then you still got Antonio Gates and San yeah. Diego and Hunter Henry, who really came on last year under Mike McCoy. So I think, like you said, if he can play that David Bruton role, uh, he's obviously worth a third-round pick. And TJ Ward has done that to some extent. But I think that's really where Justin Simmons finds his role on the Broncos until until the Broncos make a decision on TJ Ward. Well, TJ's got one more year, so you know we'll we'll see how it shakes out. But I don't. I think that if uh, if you're right in that, if Simmons uh, continues to shine in camp in preseason, I don't. I'm not sure the Broncos are actually going to pony up the cash to keep TJ Ward around beyond 2017. Another do you buy it, Swag Kelly? Chad Swag Kelly has had the wrist cast on his throwing arm removed last Monday. He's been at practice throughout OTAs. Of course, he's been in all the meetings and along with tight end Jake Butt. He's been allowed to stick his head in the huddle and hear the plays that are being called. The expectation is that Kelly will be able to throw and get cleared for contact at some point in training camp. That assumes the double ligament tear he suffered in his knee last fall at Ole Miss is healed up enough to run around as well. But Chad, for the sake of argument, Let's assume that Kelly will be able to participate in training camp and get some snaps under the preseason lights. With the general uneasiness with the quarterbacks and the fan base, a constituency of Chad Kelly fans has popped up on the internet. Some people believe that he can actually push Trevor Simeon and Paxton Lynch in year one. And some fans want him to be the starter as a rookie. Assuming he's healthy enough to participate in camp, do you buy that he can genuinely give either of these guys a run for their money? Yeah. <clears throat> no, I don't. Not this year. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I know, and this is this is something that we chose to talk about today because it really is a running theme in the fan base. It's certainly not a majority, but there is a fraction of people that are really high on on Chad Kelly, and honestly. As a, as a publication, we see that, I mean, anything you publish on Chad Kelly is guaranteed to get a lot of page views. And I don't say that because we try to exploit that, but just that, I mean, there's a lot of interest in him as a, as a young guy coming in. But to get back to the issue, do I buy him genuinely giving either of these guys a run? Not this year. I mean, I think you could possibly make an argument had he been healthy uh, throughout this entire process, uh, leading up into camp. There's, it would give him a little bit more of a possibility, but by the time he actually gets his legs fully under him and is healed up enough to start throwing, 
I mean, Simeon and Lynch are going to be so far ahead of him that it's going to be next to impossible. Now, I do think that he's going to get an opportunity to show what he's got and prove to the Broncos this summer that he's worthy of stashing on on the 53-man roster. I don't think they're going to take the risk uh, of trying to wave him and slip him onto the practice squad because basically, I mean, yeah, he had all the off-field stuff and there's the character issues, but if he was 100% healthy, if he didn't have the wrist and the, and the knee injury, he would have gotten drafted a lot earlier than the seventh round. And I don't care what anybody says on that. The things I've been told uh, it, from the scouting community and just general knowledge of the situation, teams around the NFL are high on his natural ability. So the Broncos aren't going to be able to just wave him and try and stash him. So they're going to have to make a decision this summer um, whether or not they actually want to keep him on the 53 and with two young guys uh, ahead of him on the depth chart, you know, I think they can afford to stash him and, you know, not dress every game. You know, he'll just be a, a inactive week in, a week out, unless one of the top two guys gets injured. But I am really excited, honestly, uh, from the film study I've done on him since the Broncos made the pick, to see him get out there and compete and throw the ball because he he does have great arm talent. He is athletic. He's got to work on some of his decision-making uh, on the field and all that, but I am excited to see him actually compete in the orange and blue against competition in the preseason, but I really don't see him this year being able to push either of these guys. Now, next year, if neither Simeon nor Lynch are able to really put a stranglehold on the job and the Broncos have a, a middling-type season, yes, next year Chad Kelly fully would factor into the quarterback competition. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. I don't buy that he has a chance to start this year because I, I think it's one thing to be in the huddle and listen to the play calls and whatnot, but you really have to be taking the real snaps and not the mental reps sort of to adjust to the speed of the NFL. Yeah, That's even coming from Ole Miss and the SEC and playing teams like LSU and Alabama every year. But I do think there is a lot of value in, like you said, stashing him on the 53-man roster and kind of making him redshirt his rookie year. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked about his off-field issues, and a lot of that was uh, from his time in Clemson. And then, of course, that that uh, Netflix series, what was it called? Uh, Last well, Chance Year. Yeah, yeah. Last Chance Year. He, that wasn't, you know, the season where he was, but they kind of set it up. He spent uh, a full year at junior college in Scuba, Mississippi, and he became not just like not just a better player, which he did, but he became a better teammate and kind of just a more calm, I guess, uh, humble guy, if you will. But, you know, he's he's still not quite there, I don't think, as far as a team leader. And uh, yeah. he's, he doesn't quite have the high character that you want out of your leading man for the franchise. And that's what you have to expect a quarterback to be in this day and age. Yeah. They have to be kind of um, – they have to be marketable, really. And I don't know if Chad Kelly is quite there yet. So I think you give him a year not only to learn as a player, but kind of to learn to be in the NFL and to handle, you know, getting a getting a big paycheck every week and having responsibilities. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's he's still not perfect. You know, believe it or not, I have sources at Ole Miss and he's still uh, according to them, had some immaturity issues off the field. Nothing, nothing yeah. too troubling, but 
he's still he's still kind of a, just like a he's a kid really. Mm-hmm. And so I think a season of just holding the clipboard behind Trevor Simeon, Paxton Lynch, who I I think are really high character guys, will humble him a little bit and be really valuable for him and the Broncos. Plus, you know, being the third guy on the totem pole, I mean, that's humbling in and of itself, right? I mean, Absolutely. that doesn't necessarily mean it affects your confidence or takes away your own personal belief in your ability, but it does kind of give you perspective on where you fit in in the big picture. So, I mean, it's exciting for fans to hear, for example, in his first public interview in Denver, not long after he was drafted, he told D-Mac and Big Al on uh, the drive on Big on uh, 104.3 The Fan, uh, when they were asked to describe what kind of quarterback, you know, they named some names, and then what kind of quarterback are you? He compared himself to John Elway and Brett Favre. That's the type of hubris he has, and in a way, you kind of <laughs> yeah. have to, you kind of have to respect that he has the balls to say that. But at the same time, that also shows that he lacks some of the tact to maybe, you know, pump the brakes, dial it back a little bit, and uh, you know, give us a break. But, but no, I mean, think about this, Trevor Simeon also a seventh-round pick two years ago. Coming off an ACL, the Broncos weren't sure exactly what they had in him. He comes in, he competes behind Osweiler and Manning. And I don't know if you guys remember, those of you listening, but Simeon had a remarkable preseason. He played his butt off, and it impressed the team so much that they decided to roster him. They stashed him on the roster rather than risk, because of how, how good his performance was, he put on film, risk him to the waiver wire, and so I think, and it ended up paying big dividends for the team, of course, down the road. And I think with Chad Kelly, you know, barring some kind of incident or, you know, complication to his recovery, you're going to see a similar similar process. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. You know, that it might take a year or two, but I think at some point we will hear Chad Kelly's name in a quarterback competition during his time in Denver, just not this year. So, you know, another thing we want to keep our eye on uh, heading into the training camp is how the wide receiver core shakes out. So they drafted Carlos Henderson in the third round and then Isaiah McKenzie in the fifth round. They already have De- uh, Demarius Thomas and Emmanuel Sanders on the outside. And they have a few holdovers in Jordan Taylor, Benny Fowler, and then Cody Latimer. So that's seven spots. And they're more than likely only going to keep about six guys. So given that Demarius Thomas and Emmanuel Sanders are locks on the outside and you think that Henderson being a third round pick is just as much of a lock, how do you think the rest of the wide receiver core shakes out? What are you, what are your six wide receivers who make the team? Based on what we know coming out of OTAs, what I would say if I just, if I had to name my six right now, I would say DT Sanders are your one and two, Henderson your is your three, and then I'm going to say McKenzie makes the team just based purely on his what what we've heard so far out of OTAs and his ability and what he brings value wise as a returner. So DT Sanders, Henderson McKenzie, that's four. And then I'm gonna say Cody Latimer gets his last swing with the Broncos and then Jordan Taylor. Now I I that excludes Benny Fowler and really for me it comes down to is it going to be Fowler or Latimer? And Latimer just brings more today as a special teamer, especially with uh, Kayvon Webster leaving to join Wade Phillips with the Los Angeles Rams, the Broncos are going to need a guy, a gunner, who they can really count on on a, a snap-in, snap-out basis to get down there, cover that punt, and make a play. And Fowler, he can do some of those same things. We've seen him make uh, special teams tackles, um, but not 
I mean, Latimer really came on strong last year as a factor in the third phase. And I just think Jordan Taylor is continuing to develop in the way that the Broncos like. And I think he continues basically to be Demarius Thomas's backup. So that for me, that leaves Fowler and, of course, Marlon Brown. And then there's one or two other uh, futures guys and undrafted guys uh, on the outside looking in. What are your six? So my six is identical to yours except for the Cody Ladmer, Benny Fowler little debate. Uh, DT Sanders, Carlos Henderson, Jordan Taylor as the fourth guy behind DT, then Isaiah McKenzie primarily as a returner, but you know yeah. also getting a few spe- maybe like special package plays, just getting the ball in his hands in space. Right. And then I, I think I really struggled with it too because like you said, Cody Latimer gives so much as a gunner, and they did get rid of or they didn't get rid of, but Kayvon Webster left for the Rams, and I think it. Guys who can provide value on special teams, even if you know it's like in Latimer's case where he's a second-round pick and he hasn't done much as a wide receiver, he has kind of carved a niche out on on the Broncos, even if it's not what they expected. So I think he's still got a little bit of a hold on his roster spot. But I think when it comes down to it, Fowler gives a little bit more as a receiver, and I think they're going to opt for that because he can – play special teams as well you know he was injured at the beginning of last season because he i think he what was it broke his wrist yeah he fractured his elbow yeah he fractured his elbow blocking a punt i think against the bears yep first preseason game yeah so we know that he can do some things on special teams and if the difference is that big as a receiver and we saw we saw benny fowler do a lot do a lot as a receiver the lot uh in 2015 not as much in 2016 right but if the difference is that significant on offense, I think they will opt for Benny Fowler over Cody Latimer, even if Latimer's uh, as good on special teams as he's been the last couple of seasons, really. And it could very well happen that way. One one factor that I omitted that bolsters your argument is the fact that the that Cody Latimer's on on deck to make uh, 1.18 million this year. So if the Broncos were, for example, to cut him at any point leading up to the regular season, they would save almost a million bucks on the cap, 925K, whereas Benny Fowler, all things being equal, is making 615K. So, they, I mean, that's not all that much money in the grand scheme of things to write home about, but if the Broncos are looking to, you know, save some money on the cap and all things are being equal between the two when it comes down to performance, I could see that happening. But uh, I really just see at this point, uh, uh, Cody Latimer, that is, having a little bit more to offer the team. And you know what? If Benny Fowler comes in and lights it up um, this time around, because he kind of had a, as impressive as he was in 2015, injuries kind of derailed the 2016 campaign for Benny Fowler. And if he can bounce back from that and pick up some more momentum, hey, uh, I think there's a place for him on the team, no doubt. Yeah, it's it's kind of weird because we were talking about this with Paxton Lynch about how you have to play the guy because he's a first rounder. But that, I think Cody Latimer's case where he's making almost twice as much as Benny Fowler, right? It's kind of a case of his draft position working against him in this in this instance. So I don't, you know, I don't know if that's fair, but that's just kind of the business of football. And I think we might see something similar with Virgil Green where he's. You know, he signed a contract after the 2014 season to yep. be the number one tight end. And, you know, maybe maybe they think about letting him go just mm-hmm. because they drafted, depending, I guess, on the development of Jake Butt, um, 
and his ACL injury. But we, we could see a couple of those decisions with the Broncos this year. Yep. And there's still time for them to make them. You know, they still have plenty of time to see how these guys, you know, how it shapes out once yep. the contact starts during training camp. Now, another thing, Jamal Charles has been out on the grass for all of OTAs, but toward the end, he was actually wearing his helmet. He was starting to make cuts and showing some of that, you know, showing his burst, his speed, showing excellent feet and his ability as a receiver out of the backfield, even though he's not quite 100% and hasn't, of course, been fully cleared. C.J. Anderson, he didn't really do anything to rise or fall during OTAs, but Charles showing that he just might have something left in the tank to me it kind of puts Devonte booker in the corner and nobody will puts booker in the corner <laughs> now training camp is going to ultimately determine the depth chart and of course the order for playing time but how much jeopardy is booker in and i don't mean with you know having a place on the roster but just for playing time with charles beginning to progress and then of course d'angelo hop henderson also earning some high marks yeah, so I think in training camp, it's going to be a little bit of a dogfight with D'Angelo Henderson. I almost called him Carlos Henderson. It's just it's weird having so it's, many Henderson on the same offense. It will. It absolutely will. But I think my best guess is that D'Angelo Henderson uh, starts his career on the practice squad. And then, you know, because between CJ Anderson and Jamal Charles, there's a pretty good chance that someone's going to miss a couple games here or there. Yeah. And so I think that's where D'Angelo Henderson gets called up to the big leagues, uh, if you will. Uh, But as far as Devontae Booker's playing time, I think I don't think he's going to have too much of a problem. And I think he's more valuable in a limited role than he is in um, a leading role, I guess. Yeah. We saw that last year after C.J. Anderson uh, got hurt, and then Devontae Booker was was getting was carrying the load. Uh, before they signed Justin Forsett at the end of the year. But he is better as a number two, and the defense has kind of already been softened up by C.J. Anderson and then, I guess, spread out by Jamal Charles when mm. when he takes the field in 2017. Yeah. <laughs> but um, Booker, Booker's Booker got a place on the field because he's versatile. You know, He's a good receiver. He can he can run inside. He can run outside. And, you know, like we talked about with Andy Janovich, if you're versatile, you're going to have a place on this offense. And I, I think Devontae Booker is safe. Yeah, I agree with you. He's going to get his uh, his opportunities this year. And he's also a guy that we have to uh, consider, you know, had his struggles overcoming a knee injury as a rookie. I mean, he was cast into a starting role uh, less than a year removed as a rookie from uh, tearing the meniscus in his knee, which he ended up having to actually have two procedures on because the first one to repair it didn't quite take. So they had to do a second one not too long before the draft. And so that killed his entire offseason rehab. And he finally got on the grass. But, you know, as a as a runner, as a cutter on the field and a guy who relies on explosion uh, from the lower half of your body, that just we didn't fully see Devontae Booker. And I say that as a guy whose alma mater is the University of Utah. I watched just about every game Devontae Booker played as a Ute. And as a rookie, you just didn't see the same explosion that you saw from him in his collegiate days. And I don't chalk that up to, you know, speed of the game and, you know, the opposition, the competition is bigger, faster, stronger. I chalk it up, honestly, to him still not quite 
being 100%, and then you have to factor in the war of attrition that is a 16-game NFL schedule that rookies have to acclimate to. And for him, all things, you know, you, you throw that all into the pot, and it's no surprise why down the stretch he started to fade, which forced him to really push uh, Justin Forsett to the forefront. Now, back to your point, though, I think you're absolutely right. I think he's best served at this stage in his career as a rotational guy who can come in, be a role player, provide a spark. You know, he can. he's a guy who can come in on second down, and the defense has to respect a possible run, and they have to respect that he might come out in a pattern and catch a pass. He's that versatile, and I, I'm honestly really excited to see what he can do in his second year, even though the odds tell us he's going to be the third man on the totem pole. Yeah, you make a good point, and people don't really – bring this up very much but Devontae Booger was hurt before the draft and that's kind of why he fell to the fourth round when a lot of people thought that he was the second best running back behind Ezekiel Elliott in 2016 but that's kind of the same case as the next guy that we're going to talk about who is Adam Gotsis and he's been he's come to the facility a little bit stronger and a little bit bigger than he was in his rookie season he's had that uh, additional year to recover from uh, an ACL injury that he suffered on Halloween at Georgia Tech, his his uh, last season there. So the Broncos signed Domita Pecco, they signed Zach Kerr, and they still have uh, Jared Crick manning the left defensive end. And Crick's been running with the ones. He started last year. But with an additional year uh, for Gotsis to rehab that ACL injury, can you see him taking the starting job away from Jared Crick uh, come week one, or do you think we should pump the brakes on that? Ooh, that's a <clears throat> that's an interesting question. And before I answer that, I should offer up this quick sidebar that not too long ago, when we were trying to, you know, during the off season, it's all about speculation, especially when they're not even practicing yet. So dating back to, you know, March and all the way up until late May, talking about, you know, trying to project and look ahead at this defensive line, I honestly was seeing Pecco as the nose and then Zach Kerr as the other defensive end starting opposite of Derek Wolf, But that has been flipped on its ear. We learned from Zach Kerr this past week that the vast majority of his snaps have come at nose tackle. So he and, and Pecco are going to rotate from what it sounds like as the nose guys. And the cool thing about both guys, but especially Kerr, is that they can play anywhere along the defensive line. So that, to me, the reason I bring that up is that takes Kerr a little bit more out of the running for that other defensive end spot. Can I see Adam Gotsis resting that starting job away from Crick? I absolutely can, based on what we've been seeing. And for me, what it really comes down to for Gotsis is the whole strength, and now that he's healed up, showing more uh, quick, short area quickness at the point of attack, which is what I've been hearing coming out of OTAs, that he just really, frankly, is, is you know, he looks like a different player, basically. And for me, as long as he can hold up on first and second down and help Derek Wolf set the edge and allow these linebackers to get to the ball. I mean, I think Adam Gotsis very easily, could, when it comes to odds, could be that starting guy. And right now, yeah, Crick's running with the ones, and Vance Joseph spoke to why that is. He's the incumbent. And that's basically the approach this new coaching staff has taken with the depth chart at this point in the offseason is the guys who were the incumbents from 16, they're the ones running with the ones to start. And we're honestly, Will, not going to see that change till we get to training camp and with contact. It's, it's going to be the way it is now all the way up until that point. 
Yeah, I have to agree with you that Adam Gatsas does have a really good shot to start in year two. And that's mostly because Jared Crick wasn't all that impressive last year after they signed him from the Houston Texans. Yeah. You know, when you think about it, on a really good defense, he was arguably the biggest weakness. And so if the Gatsas hype is real and we don't know that it is, you know, it could be sort of an off-season trope. Yep. But we've heard it repeated over and over again by coaching staff and players and whatnot. And it does make sense given that he's uh, he's had an additional year to recover from an ACL injury, which, you know, it, it takes time. It does. So I think kind of like, you know, kind of what was the case with Derek Wolf, where they drafted him in the second round too. He wasn't injured, but it took him a little while to become the player that he is today. Yep. That that can be the case sometimes for defensive defensive ends in the three four, and um, that was also the case for Malik Jackson. You know, he wasn't drafted quite as high, but you didn't see you didn't see them become the players that they are now until about you know year two or three. So and and Gotsis, of course was drafted as kind of a project players player, which kind of questionable when you think. You know, should you be spending a second rounder on a guy who? Right, right. We you know, we lambasted that decision countless times last year for sure. Yeah, but you know, Bill Bill Kalar pounded the table for him, so you know you have to take his word for it to some extent. But um, by year two, you know, he, he might not be the player that he's going to be in year three or year four, but you'd expect him to start, and I think he's going to. Yeah, that's a fair point. I won't be surprised if he does <clears throat> turn the corner to a point where they can count on him to start uh, in year two. Now, the Broncos, talking about investing in the draft, invested their first-round pick this year in Garrett Bowles. But, again, he has started out on the second team. He's playing left tackle, of course. While on the first team, Donald Stevenson and Tyson Brylow have been evenly splitting time at left tackle. Now, for the better part of the last six months, I've been trying to tell Broncos fans, and I've gotten a lot of guff for it, not to write Sam Brylow off quite yet. For the first time in his young career, Ty Sam Brylow has been healthy throughout the offseason. He's not recovering from surgery, which has finally allowed him to get into the weight room and rebuild his core strength. His upper body is stronger than it's ever been, and we already know that he has NFL left tackle athleticism in his rookie year when we saw him play in the position for those first three games before he got injured protecting Peyton Manning. He did a good job. And with Donald Stevenson basically due another couple million bucks if he makes the final roster, his stock could be dropping by default with how good Sam Brylow is looking. Now Garrett Bowles, he's still kind of consumed by the learning process. He's still acclimating to life as a pro, and I'm certainly not writing him off. But of all the left tackle candidates, Sam Brylow, I think, right now has the most momentum. Again, we have to wait until training camp. You know, that's the disclaimer, of course. We'll really be able to see Sam Brylow's, you know, new strength in action when the contact begins. But, Will, would it surprise you if Ty Sam Brylow wins the starting job with Bowles starting off his Broncos career as the swing tackle? Because, you know, Sam Brylow has struggled to stay healthy, so Bowles could quite literally be one play away from seeing the field. I guess I would be a little surprised given where they took Garrett Bowles and given the fact that he's 25 and you'd expect a guy like that to be starting right away. Uh, and also, you know, they, they thought he was the best tackle in the draft class. So that it, all those things combined, you know, he should be on the field in week one. And I think if he's not, that's kind of a disappointment. But to the point of Tyson Brylow maybe starting, you know, Tyson Brylow was – 
an abject disaster at right tackle last year. If you remember that that Sunday night Kansas City Chiefs game, he was he was absolutely obliterated by Justin Houston over and over again in that first half until they finally put Donald Stevenson in. But the thing about the offensive line is just because you're a terrible right tackle, and make no mistake, Tyson Brylow is a <laughs> terrible right tackle. Yeah. He's much more natural on the left side. And you might not think it makes a difference what side you're playing on, but I would say go about your whole day and do whatever you do regularly with your offhand and see what kind of difference it makes right, right. versus your dominant hand. And that's kind of the case for offensive linemen as well. They have to relearn their footwork. They have to, you know, they're playing. Uh, usually the best edge rusher lines up on the defensive left, which would be against the right tackle. So that makes a difference too. And, you know, that doesn't get brought up enough in the in the right. modern day NFL, how how valuable right tackles have become because of that. So I think Sam Brylo has, it won't be, it won't be time to press the panic button if he's the starter at left tackle. But I do think it would be a disappointment if we don't see Garrett Bowles at that point. Yeah. And I would agree with you on that. And another thing to your point about uh, the difference in going from left to right, it's not just a seamless, easy thing. I mean, not only do they have to change up their footwork, they have to change their assignments change, how they read the field changes, how they understand their leverage changes. And yep. so it really is something that, you know, it's 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 not as easy as it might seem from the outside looking in. But when it comes to this discussion specifically between Sam Brilo and Bowles, and I'm not counting out Donald Stevenson, but the Broncos are on the hook for a significant chunk of change if they keep him. And so I think they're probably looking for any reason to give them confidence to to go ahead and, and let him walk but Sam Brilo I'm not going to be surprised if he does win the job and honestly it's not going to change my perspective on Garrett Bowles as a you know as a as a long-term option at left tackle if he doesn't win the job even though I am I do lean towards by the time the pads start coming on and the the contact and the physicality you're going to see Garrett Bowles create some separation, I think, in that competition. I mean, he's just a much more naturally violent and naturally physical player than Ty Sambrilo, who at times, if you watch his tape, it almost looks like he dreads contact, you know? And, yeah. And while that you can get away with that in a lot of ways as a left tackle, um, Garrett Bowles, I think, once those type of drills and the contact starts, you're going to really see him set himself apart from Ty Sambrilo. But again... I'm I'm still at a point, regardless of I'm not ready to write Sam Brilo off, and I'm really really intrigued to see how this newfound strength, how that shakes out on the grass in training camp, and how much better he might look playing left tackle and being stronger once we get to see him in action in the preseason games. Yeah, you know I was thinking about this actually earlier, but don't you don't you think that so much about the Broncos offense in 2017 depends on not just the left tackle, but both tackle positions between, you know, whoever it is at left tackle, Sam Brilo or Garrett Bowles, and then right tackle, they addressed it in free agency, but it's still a little bit of a question mark yeah. for me, whether Menelik Watson can be the guy at right tackle. You know, he was injured a lot in Oakland and even when he played, you know, I have a lot of friends who are Raiders fans, and they didn't have particularly high views about or high <laughs> reviews yeah. regarding Menelik Watson. So, 
I think, you know, so much, so much hinges on the tackle play and, you know, the quarterback's development and whether they could run the ball. So I, I think that's, you know, that's something to really keep an eye on heading into the season. Now I am curious about one thing, Will, when, when we were talking about Paxton Lynch, part of your, not necessarily your argument, but part of your analysis, I should say, was that just because he's a first-round pick doesn't mean he should start, or that the Broncos should start him. Conversely, right. though, with Bulls, you're like, hey, he's a first-round pick, I, you know, he's got to play. How do you differentiate the two? What's the difference between those two positions? Or even how is a quarterback different compared to a first-round pick like, you know, Bulls or if it was Vaughn Miller or anybody else? Right. Well, I think it. I think it helps that it helps my case that Bowles is twenty five. You know, he's a, he's a fully grown man, and you'd expect a guy who you take, uh, you know, in his mid twenties to be able to start right away. And yeah. if you think he is the best player at his position, that generally means that he should be seeing the field by week one. And it's a difference between you know quarterback and left tackle. You know, it, it takes longer. Like left tackle is a very difficult and complicated position. But it's not quite playing quarterback in the NFL, and it's it's not you know going from the spread offense in Memphis to a pro style offense under Mike McCoy or Gary Kubiak in Denver. Yeah, it's a little bit easier to pick up uh, in terms of learning the left tackle position going from Utah to uh, Denver Broncos, and so I think that for that reason you have to expect. Um, less of an adjustment period from a left tackle uh, than you would a quarterback. And it really is. It just kind of showcases, though, this this particular topic, the kind of uh, catch-22 that coaches and front office guys have when it comes to shaping a roster. You know, you, you invest in a first-round pick, and on the one hand, you want to give that, that first-rounder every single <clears throat> every single opportunity to win the job and succeed and start. But at the same yeah. time... In so doing, how far do you go in being willing to compromise the integrity of your competition, the spirit of your competition with your ball club and the other veterans and the other rookies on the team in facilitating that person, that player, making or, or, or being the starter? It's a, it's a tough question, and I think by and large, if you look at the empirical data in the NFL, by and large, most teams err on, well, he's a first-rounder, Let's just see how, you know, let's roll the dice and see how it works. We can always bench him type as opposed to, no, it's fair. It's open. They're going to have to earn it. By and large, you see him more getting grandfathered in. Yeah. And I'd say that, you know, there's not a Trevor Simeon type on the offensive line. You know, the main competition right now is Tyson Brylow and Donald Stevenson. And neither of those guys were overachievers. Like, you know, they weren't seven, seven thrown picks. That's a fair point. Yeah. Surprised people. They're actually disappointments if you look at, you know, Ty Sambrilo, I think was a second rounder coming out of Colorado State yep. in twenty fifteen and then uh Donald Stevenson, you know, they signed him uh after the twenty fifteen season and he, you know, needless to say, he didn't perform up to par last Pick year. Pay cook. Right, yeah. And so you know, for that reason, I don't think that there is, you know, that natural competition there. You know, Garrett Bowles he is the man uh, coming out of, you know, being a first round pick and they expect him to start just like they expected Paxton Lynch to start. Uh, what they didn't expect was for Trevor Simeon to take such a big leap from year one to year two. Yep. And I don't expect anybody 
on the offensive line between, I don't know, Michael Schofield, Stevenson, Sam Bryle, anybody to make that big of a leap and to really honestly compete for the job long term. That's one of the difficult situations that the Broncos are in right now is that you're right. I mean, it's not like Lynch only has to beat out Chad Kelly and Kyle Sloter to win this gig where it's just like a slam dunk. I mean, Trevor Simeon is a sincere impediment and a real competition to winning the job. And I think this time around, the Broncos, no matter which who ends up winning the job, the Broncos are going to probably get the best guy. I mean, the best guy is going to play. And last year, that was Trevor Simeon. And I think this year, I, I'll be surprised if it's not Paxton Lynch, just to be honest with you. That's, that's how I'm seeing it right now. But again, once we get to the training camp and preseason games, that, that could change in a hurry. And you, and you think like, you know, this isn't the argument that you'd make for a left tackle because you absolutely want the best left tackle on your roster to be starting regardless of any other factors. But you could make the case for Pax and Lynch. You know, everybody's talked about, you know, if it's close or even if Lynch is a little bit behind and Simeon's not really blowing the doors down, yeah. then you would give the job to Lynch because he's got the higher ceiling and he's got, you know, he's got more um, potential for growth if he's given a few games to work on it. And so you can say that about the quarterback position because there is, you know, you'll you'll allow you'll allow quarterbacks a little bit of time to work out the kinks yeah. where if you're you know, if you're giving your left tackle some time to work out the kinks, <laughs> yeah. if there's a better option on the roster, yeah, yeah. someone's gonna die. Offense, yeah, your offense is totally screwed yeah. and you're not gonna have a quarterback. That's right. But you know, if if your quarterback struggles, you're not you know, you'll you can live with that for a few weeks if you think that it's going to pay dividends in the future. And that's not really the case for uh, a left tackle. Absolutely. And these are storylines that aren't going to be going away anytime soon. And it's going to be fun to continue to spitball these and analyze it as we get farther into the summer. But that's all the time we have for today's show. Follow us on Twitter at HuddleUpPod. Find Will in the Twitterverse at WillKey6. Myself at Chad and Jensen. And again, tweet us your questions. We'll Try to address your concerns on the show as often as we can. And don't forget to subscribe and rate the show, y'all. For Will, I'm Chad. We'll talk to you soon. Mile High Huddle. Attention Social Security and SSI recipients. If you did not receive an economic impact payment for your eligible spouse or dependents, you may need to file a 2020 tax return with the IRS and claim the recovery rebate credit. Go to ssa.gov slash EIP to see if you need to file a tax return and if eligible for other refundable tax credits, like the child tax credit. That's ssa.gov slash EIP. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Oh, that's a cheer we used to do in softball. Uh, what? It's, uh, actually Geico. Whenever someone hit a triple, we would wave our bats and yell, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. But we never got to use it because we would only hit home runs. Annoying. The phrase is from Geico because they help save people money? Geico? Yeah, they were our team sponsor. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more.